Hello, everyone, and welcome to Worship at Grace. Last week, we started a new series called When the Well Goes Dry. And I shared how our family, after 13 days in our first home, had the well literally go dry. That was our sole source of water on the property, and it represented not only financial disaster, but the dashing of hopes and dreams about a safe place to get away from the rat race of life and ministry. That experience impacted our lives emotionally and spiritually in ways we could have never dreamed. But that story is nothing compared to what some of you have experienced. Some of you have had siblings who abused you or parents who exploited and neglect you. Some of you have been stabbed in the back by a spouse who was unfaithful or a business partner who embezzled money and left your life in ruins. Some of you have pursued a vocational dream, perhaps, and you were so excited about it, but it has so far ended up sour, unfulfilled, and you are reeling with the hopelessness of it all. I mean, why would God allow that? Why would people whom you trusted so implicitly turn their back like that? If the well has ever gone dry on your hopes and dreams, I invite you today to go on a journey into the real life of a man named Joseph in the Bible. He had every reason to be bitter and cynical about life, but by God's grace, Joseph's story is a redemptive one. I believe, by God's grace, yours can be too. So first, I want you to kind of walk you through the basics of Joseph's story. Many of you listening may not be aware of this awesome Bible episode. First, notice the relationship with his brothers. They basically despised him. We pick it up in Genesis 37, and if you have a Bible of your own or maybe um, some sort of device where you read Scripture, uh, feel free to find Genesis 37. It's the first book in the Bible. It says, when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him and could not speak a kind word to him. But you know, Joseph made things worse by telling them he had this awesome dream where they were going to bow down to him one day. And verse eight says, his brother said to him, do you intend to reign over us? Will you actually rule us? And they hated him all the more because of his dream and what he had said. And you need to understand at this point, Joseph is clueless when it comes to emotional intelligence and relationships. I mean, Either he's deliberately provoking his brothers or he honestly just doesn't have a clue how arrogantly he's coming across. So in their minds, they start plotting to kill him. One day, Joseph's father said, hey, I, I want you to go check on your older brothers. They're out tending sheep at Shechem and I want you to make sure that everything's okay. By the way, Jacob was a rather naive, undiscerning father. Us parents can sometimes be that way. His emotional intelligence was 
was also abysmal to ever put Joseph in a situation like that. And we go on reading in verse 18, but they saw him in the distance and before he reached them, they plotted to kill him. Here comes that dreamer, they said to each other. Come now, let's kill him and throw him into one of these cisterns and say that a ferocious animal devoured him. Then we'll see what comes of his dreams. You know, a mob mentality, it seems, is beginning to kick in here, and they're literally planning to eliminate their own flesh and blood. We go on reading in verse 23. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the richly ornamented robe he was wearing, and they took him and threw him into the cistern. Now the cistern was empty. There was no water in it. As they sat down to eat their meal, they looked up and saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead. Now, think of how calloused you'd have to be to sit down and eat a meal while your brother is screaming and crying for help. I got a question for you, though. Is it a coincidence that these Ishmaelite traders just just happen, they just, they just happen to be coming down the road at this precise moment. Think about it. If they'd been a half hour sooner, it wouldn't work. Or a half hour later, it would have been too late. One of the most encouraging aspects of this story is how God's sovereign intervention is evident throughout the whole thing. God's timing in our lives is never tardy. He's always right on time, although his timing is often a bit different from ours. We read here in verse 26, Judah said to his brothers, what will we gain if we kill our brother and cover up his blood? Come, let's sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay our hands on him. After all, he is our brother, our own flesh, and blood. His brothers agreed. So when the Midianite merchants came by, his brothers pulled Joseph up out of the cistern and sold him. Think of that. They sold him for 20 shekels of silver to the Ishmaelites who took him to Egypt. Do the math. 10 brothers, 20 shekels of silver, payment for their brother. That is two lousy shekels a brother. Now, put yourself in Joseph's shoes here for a moment. Some of you have had massive betrayals by people who, who really should have protected you. Now, here is a 17-year-old shackled and put in a pen and carried off to a foreign land. Wow. As I think back, I in my own life, I, I left my home in Leoma, Tennessee for Carson Newman College at the age of 17. <laughs> I had my 1972 brown Ford Maverick loaded down with almost every earthly possession I owned. No one in my family had ever been to college, so I couldn't even ask anyone, hey, what's it gonna be like? My family didn't do vacations or travel very much. So the farthest I'd ever been from home was 
playing basketball games in neighboring cities, maybe up to 80 miles away. I had only spent a few nights away from home in my entire life, and now, now I was going a five and a half hour drive away, and the soonest I would possibly be back would be Thanksgiving holiday. It was a very emotional, nostalgic moment. I'll never forget it when I said that final goodbye to my family and started that journey. But here is Joseph snatched away against his will, and he doesn't know if he'll ever get back. Verse 31 reads, Then they got Joseph's robe, slaughtered a goat, and dipped the robe in the blood. They took the ornamented robe back to their father and said, we found this. Examine it to see whether it's your son's robe. He recognized it and said, it is my son's robe. Some ferocious animal has devoured him. Joseph has surely been torn to pieces. I wonder, I wonder what is the worst thing a family member has ever done to you? Cut you out of the family will? Exclude you from family gatherings? Verbally abuse you? Physically assault you? You know, when the people who should love and protect you the most betray you? I want to tell you, it can scar you for life. But Joseph's ordeal was far from over. When they arrived in Egypt, he was sold to a man named Potiphar. What an interesting name. Potiphar. He was an important man. He was sort of the chief of the guards for Pharaoh, who was the chief ruler of Egypt, like the king. And Potiphar, he recognized leadership gifts when he saw them. So he promoted Joseph. Genesis 39 verse 2 says, The Lord was with Joseph and he prospered. And he lived in the house of his Egyptian master. His master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord gave him success in everything he did. Joseph found favor in his eyes and became his attendant. Potiphar put him in charge of his household and he entrusted to his care everything he owned. Think of that, folks. He is implicitly trusting Joseph at this point. He knows he's a man of character. From the time he put him in charge of his household and of all that he owned, the Lord blessed the household of the Egyptian because of Joseph. The blessing of the Lord was on everything Potiphar had, both in the house and in the field. You know, it's been said that happiness is a choice, and I believe that Joseph chose to bloom where he was planted. This was lousy, but he was going to make the best of it. He served his master well, but you know, it's like this guy can't catch a break. Joseph was handsome and well-built, and Potiphar's wife invited him to have an affair with her. Now, come on, let's have a moment here, folks. Let's have a moment. I think, I think most people today would have reasoned like this. Look, Joe, hey, buddy, listen up. Look, you've had a hard life, all right? 
The well seems to have gone dry on your family relationships. You know what I mean, Joe? And on your vocational plans and on your hopes and dreams. I mean, it's just not good. So, buddy, at this point, the normal rules just don't apply to you, okay? Whatever makes you happy, hey, that's all right. But this, this is what really gets me about this true story. This is perhaps the greatest injustice of all. When Joseph does the right thing, hear this, he refuses to go to bed with her. Can you believe it? She falsely accuses him of rape and he's thrown in prison for a crime he didn't commit. Debbie and I recently watched a Netflix series called The Innocence Files. It's about people being unjustly imprisoned. And victim after victim after victim attested that the hardest thing to deal with is knowing, knowing that you're innocent and yet being punished for years for something you did not do. That's Joseph. Joseph did the right thing and he still suffers. He must have been wondering at this point, is there any justice at all in this crazy world? Here he is languishing in prison for a crime he didn't commit. The daily battle with bitterness must have been incredibly intense. But believe it or not, <laughs> believe it or not, are you ready? When you think things cannot get any worse, they do. Apparently, someone had tried to poison Pharaoh, and so both Pharaoh's baker and his cupbearer are thrown in prison, and they strike up an acquaintance, sort of a little friendship with Joseph, and both the baker and the cupbearer have these troubling dreams. And Joseph asks his new prison mates why they look so dejected. We both had dreams, they answered, but there's no one to interpret them. And Joseph said, do not interpretations belong to God? So, hey, tell me your dreams, guys. And the cupbearer says, well, I, it's really weird now. You know how dreams are. I dreamed that there were three branches on a grapevine and I took a cluster of grapes and then I gave them to Pharaoh. And Joseph said, oh, that's easy to interpret that in three days man, you're going to be restored to your position and you'll give the cup to Pharaoh again. And then he said, now when you're restored, now that I've done you a favor, listen, I, would you do me a favor? I'm in this dungeon unjustly, man. I need a pardon. Would you speak a good word to Pharaoh for me, please? Oh, sure, sure, man. I'll do it. I won't forget you, he said. Well, the baker the baker saw that the interpretation was good. And so he said, I had a dream too. Can you help me? There was a basket on my head that had three loaves of bread and the birds came and they, they ate the bread. Joseph's face turns ashen and he says, oh, bad news. Pharaoh is gonna lift your head in three days. You better get your affairs in order. And it all happened just as Joseph said. They were at this birthday party. They executed the baker. They restored the cupbearer to his position of influence. 
But Genesis 40, verse 23, is such a sad verse. It says, the chief cupbearer, however, did not remember Joseph. He forgot him. Joseph has got to be wondering at, at this point, is there a God in heaven? Is there any justice in this world? But eventually, as he persevered, Joseph was profoundly blessed by God. Genesis 41 verse 1 says, when two full years had passed. Now, friends, sometimes, listen now, sometimes when you're wounded and treated unjustly, and that's where some of you are today, the most profound thing you can do, get this, is simply wait. Two years later, Pharaoh had a dream that no one could interpret, and suddenly the cupbearer had a faint memory stir. He said, ah, I met this Jewish kid in prison a couple of years ago. I, how could I have forgotten? He has this amazing, I've never seen anyone like him. He has this amazing ability to interpret dreams. So Pharaoh sent for Joseph, the scripture says, and he was quickly brought from the dungeon. When he had shaved and changed his clothes, he came before Pharaoh. Pharaoh said to Joseph, I had a dream and no one can interpret it. But I, I've heard it said of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. <laughs> I cannot do it, Joseph replied to Pharaoh. But God will give Pharaoh the answer he desires. Don't you just love Joseph? Joseph humbly and accurately interprets the dream and he gives the glory and the credit to God. <clears throat> seven years of prosperity followed by seven years of famine. So, Pharaoh, you better store up. You better store up during the good years so that you can survive through the famine. And suddenly, Joseph is elevated from pit to pinnacle. Folks, I want to tell you now, it's amazing how quickly God can change your circumstances when you're trusting in him and continuing to do the right thing. Joseph is elevated to second in command in Egypt. He marries a beautiful wife. They have two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, and life seems to be soaring. But get this now, nine years later, his brothers show up. Yes, those brothers, you've got it right. The ones who sold him into slavery. They probably think he's dead. They have no idea that the man standing before them is the brother they betrayed all those years ago. He immediately recognizes them, but none of them recognize him. Now, think about it. If that's you, what would you do You've now got the power. You can imprison them. You can torture them if you want to. You can have them executed at a snap of your fingers. And I'm sure Joseph, being human, struggled with feelings of revenge. He grilled them with questions. He toyed with them to test their character. If you read the story there, and finally, 
this man who had suffered so much at their hands chose to do the unthinkable. He forgave them. Genesis 45 reads, then, jo when, then Joseph could no longer control himself before all his attendants. And he cried out, have everyone leave my presence. Get everyone out of here, in other words. So there was no one with Joseph when he made himself known to his brothers and he wept so loudly, it says that the Egyptians heard him and Pharaoh's household heard about it. Joseph said to his brothers, I'm Joseph. Is my father still living? But his brothers were not able to answer him because they were terrified at his presence. Then Joseph said to his brothers, Come, come close to me. He spoke Hebrew. He knew each of them by name. He said, I'm your brother Joseph, the one you sold into Egypt. But don't be angry with yourselves. God has worked in the midst of all this to bring about the saving of many lives. And later he was reunited with his father. And by God's grace, he saved his family from the famine that was impacting the whole world. Friends, let me tell you something. In my opinion, this is one of the greatest true stories of all time. But what are some key takeaways as we turn a corner here? What are some key takeaways from Joseph's story that we can apply to our lives? You see, the Bible was not written to fill our heads with cool information. The Bible was written to change our lives. So what can we learn from Joseph's real life saga that can inform our lives today? And many of you need a word from God. I think you'll agree because you're really hurting and you feel like you need some kind of answer about what to do. Well, first, when the well goes dry on your hopes and dreams, be careful not to judge too quickly an experience as good or bad. Here's why. What you think is good may end up bad, and what you think is bad may end, out, end, up, end up being good. It's as simple as that. Joseph's story illustrates that beautifully, doesn't it? I mean, from our human perspective, what happened to Joseph was bad. No, it wasn't bad. It was, it was horrible. It's a bad thing to be separated from your father who loves you. It's a bad thing to be despised by your siblings and sold into slavery. It's a bad thing to be falsely accused and thrown into prison. But in the end, in the end, all of these events worked out for good. Joseph actually put it like this, talking to his brothers. You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done? And what is it that's now being done? The saving of many lives. So friend, be careful in concluding an experience is bad or good because you may just be wrong. When our well went dry after 13 days in our new home, it was one of the most hurtful, disillusioning things we had ever experienced. 
we felt people had let us down. Our attorney, our attorney should have required and demanded a flow test for the well before the contract was ever signed. But he didn't. Other people involved should have been looking out for our interest and protecting us. We felt surely we've been betrayed here. Surely there's nothing good in this. But listen, the true Christ follower holds on to Romans 8, 28, that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him and who are called according to his purpose. And what is that purpose? Is God's purpose, is God's purpose that we would have a happy existence every moment of this life? Is that what you think it is? Most of the people I've known who've made happiness their life pursuit have ended up pretty miserable, pretty miserable. Happiness is wonderful, oh yes, but happiness is more of a byproduct than a goal. Happiness is a byproduct of a life lived on purpose. Helen Keller wrote in her journal, many persons have a wrong idea of what constitutes true happiness. It's not attained through self-gratification, but through fidelity to a worthy purpose. Oh, I love that statement. So please don't miss this point. If your friend, listen, if your worthy purpose is to glorify God and enjoy him forever, or if your worthy purpose is to go to heaven when you die and take as many people as you can with you, if your worthy purpose is to develop into the mature, wonderful person God designed you to be, and he did. Listen, listen, if that is your worthy purpose, you need some serious challenges in your life to bring that about. Those worthy purposes are not, I repeat, not going to be realized through a life of ease and comfort. In fact, I'm gonna put it to you as plainly as I know how. I know of no persons of deep maturity and godly character who have not suffered significantly, significantly. None, not a single person. And often that suffering is the well going dry on their hopes and dreams. So the bottom line today is this. Listen, your life may be a bit like Joseph's. And the very thing you think is bad may be used by God in the long run, in the long run to bring about good in your life and the lives of others. God may still be fulfilling your hopes and dreams but he's just doing it in a different way, in a different way than you ever thought possible. Secondly, secondly, when the well goes dry on your hopes and dreams, oh, please don't miss this. Don't nurse bitterness. Don't nurse bitterness because, I'm gonna tell you now, it will eat you alive. When your hopes and dreams have dried up, see, here's the deal, you're tempted to nurse bitterness. That's especially true if people have let you down. That's the worst disappointment of all, when you're disappointed in people that you trusted. When they've been deeply hurt, this is what I've observed. Some people vow, 
I'll get even with you if it's the last thing I ever do. You'll never do business in this town again. I'll wreck your reputation so you're exposed for the phony you are. I'm gonna dog your steps. I'll never give up until you're totally destroyed. Wow. <laughs> I heard of one wife whose husband passed away and right after he died, she discovered that he'd been cheating on her for years and she just didn't know it. She was so bitter with that discovery, she had the following message engraved on his tombstone. The tombstone read, to my beloved husband, may you rest in peace until we meet again. <laughs> you know, you can carry bitterness. You can carry bitterness even beyond the grave. Here's where Joseph is such a great example. He wept with emotion as he forgave his brothers and he refused to live with bitterness against the, those who had hurt him the most. I love Ephesians chapter four. This is what God says through the apostle Paul. Get rid of all bitterness, rage and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ, God forgave you. If we nurse bitterness, Satan has won a great victory. In fact, when we refuse to forgive, listen now, and we hold on to grudges, everybody loses. Everybody loses except one, Satan. Satan is the only winner whenever bitterness reigns in our lives. So don't nurse bitterness like a poison. It will eat you alive. And finally today, finally, when the well goes dry on your hopes and dreams, please never give up on pursuing God's purpose for you. Now, it may look different than you thought, but never stop moving in the direction of your God-given dreams. Joseph was impressive in many ways. He's honestly one of the most outstanding characters in the Bible. But as I've studied his life, here's what impresses me the most about Joseph. Here it is. No matter what happened to him, he kept on going. Nothing can stop this man. When his brothers betrayed him, when, when Potiphar's wife falsely accused him, <coughs> when his friends from prison forgot all about him and left him to rot in that dungeon, no matter what, he just kept on believing God and kept on going in the right direction and doing the right thing. In a word, I would call him tenacious. Joseph was tenacious in pursuing God's dream for his life even though it wasn't looking like what he thought it would. After the difficult days of World War II, the wartime prime minister of Great Britain, Winston Churchill was his name. He was trying to settle back into a sense of normalcy. And he was asked to speak during those days at Sandhurst, his alma mater, where he'd gone to school as a young man. Churchill had been a lackluster student at that same school and some thought he probably wouldn't amount to much. The headmaster of the school had instructed the students, it's a big day now, he said, take copious notes because this will probably be one of the greatest speeches of all time, he told them. Little did he know, the students wouldn't have much time to take notes since the speech would be so brief. 
But one thing the headmaster was right about is the greatness of the speech. Churchill rose to the podium. Never give up. After a lengthy pause, almost a minute, he said more emphatically, never give up. Another lengthy pause. And then he pounded his fist on the podium and he shouted, never, 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 never give up. He then turned and quietly sat back down. Churchill was speaking from experience. Twice in his public life, he had tasted the bitter dregs of failure. His whole life seemed an exercise in perseverance that ultimately led to his rise to be prime minister at the age, get it, of 65. And his courageous leadership of the British people against the tyrannies of Nazism was legendary. Churchill's faithful perseverance paid off big time. When the well goes dry, friend, listen, on your hopes and dreams, what are you going to do? I wrote it on this little rock. When the well goes dry, am I going to panic or praise? Are you going to panic? Or are you going to persevere in the direction of your dreams, never, ever giving up? It's really true, you know. In all things, God works for the good of those who love him and who are called according to his purpose. For years, I have loved this little poem. I walked a mile with pleasure. She chatted all the way, but left me none the wiser for all she had to say. I walked a mile with sorrow and ne'er a word said she, but oh, the things I learned from her when sorrow walked with me. Let's pray together. Father, you are so good and faithful to us. When the well goes dry on our hopes and dreams, help us not to freak out or to question your goodness or your character, but help us to know in the midst of the crisis, just like Joseph, that you're still in charge and that you're working, even though we can't see it right now, you are always working for our good and weaving together things people think could never be used for good. You're weaving them together for our good and your glory. Help us to trust you today in all of the work that you're doing. And may we come out of the challenges in our lives holding on to you, holding on to faith, and being the better for having gone through that experience. In Jesus' name, amen.